Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... You're gonna have like nine and a half minutes of just shade saying random film things. Motorcycle doctor. <laughs> yeah, it's a. He's got. He's got to put it down. An ill-advised <laughs> sequel to Doctor Doolittle. Back in my day, we should just take it out back and scrap it old Yeller style. You know how you get. You know how you get over an old motorcycle. You buy a puppy. Oh. <laughs> That's okay, Mike. The motorcycles go onto the racetrack upstate. <laughs> <laughs> he got some dirty gas in him, and now he's gone rabid. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, that's a, a strong start to uh, staying on topic for this one. Uh, <laughs> welcome back, everyone, to Working Title, the podcast where we review movies. Um, this is episode 43 for us. We just finished up La La Land last week, and now we're uh, jumping back to the past with Out of the Past, a uh, film noir. And so we, uh, we kind of had a spell early on where we... Um, I uh, saw a lot of film noirs. It's been a minute, so we're coming back to it. But yeah, so this is a 1947 film starring Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer, uh, adapted from a, a novel called Build My Gallows High. Um, this is like the quintessential film noir, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it is literally everything that a film noir is, is this movie. Uh yeah, what else about it? I mean, before we get too far into it, you know, let's uh, introduce the reviewers here in the quote-unquote studio. Uh, so in this movie, right, you know, it's a film noir. They're all like private eyes and gangsters and mobsters, and it's 1947. So they are smoking constantly. And to uh, introduce ourselves, if we were to rewrite this movie and uh, write in a different vice instead of chain smoking, um, what would we rewrite this as? So my name's Jack. If I were to rewrite a vice in this movie, it would be uh, they would all be uh, compulsive shoppers. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, John, there's a sale. <laughs> yeah, just clipping coupons in every scene and like uh, going on eBay and like calling into the Sears catalog or whatever it was in 1947. They have a bunch of empty boxes in the corner. <laughs> Piles of Amazon boxes in the door. Oh. <laughs> uh. Well, I would change. Well, my name's Mike. First off, <clears throat> and I would um, I'll go for a little bit of a more of an explanation to why they talk so quickly, and uh, they just be doing rails of coke throughout the entire film. <laughs> They're all paranoid. <laughs> mid mid conversation, just just tapping it on their fingers. <laughs> Could I have a bump? <laughs> Oh, that's excellent. My name is Shane, and I went for more of a vice of the people and a little more accessible, and I would just have them all huff paint. (laughs) Every scene, they would come in, one guy would, like, roll out a big paper bag and just start spraying paint into it. (laughs) Everyone would have a a ring around their mouth and nose. I picked the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. (laughs) Could I I have a little bit? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Yeah, good, good. Great fully work. Uh, I'll just do whippets. 
I'm June, and uh, one of the quintessential things about a noir is that it's, you know, black and white and dark. And you know what else is black, white, and dark? Emo kids. (laughs) So everyone would be cutting. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Just on the jukebox, it's just like black parade. (laughs) (laughs) They've all got those scene kid haircuts. Yeah. You just wait for the emo noir of the the 21st century. (laughs) I feel like the scene kids thing is something that is like only people of our age will ever fully understand. No one <laughs> understands, man. <laughs> the, the emo noir. I love it. I just picture Wit like being like, you're going to get my money back, okay? And he's just flicking his hair back and to the left constantly. <laughs> just, it would be definitely, definitely Jared Leto. And uh, <laughs> Kathy is wearing like those striped stockings and like the big hair with the, the bleached uh bang <laughs> yeah yes oh man i want to watch this now <laughs> this like sounds a, awesome like yeah. the long sleeve shirt underneath a t-shirt that was like all the rage okay all right we're we're too far gone let's come back that's how boring this movie was <laughs> we want scene kids in it <laughs> yeah so out of the past film noir um so, I mean, kind of implicit within any film noir, right, is, you know, there's uh, someone evading their past, there's private eyes, there's a femme fatale who, you know, there's there's double crossing and triple crossing, and this movie literally has all of it. Double, triple um, cross. Yeah, the quadruple cross, like Tony Hawk, uh, pro skater, <laughs> like, uh, moves just like double cross, triple cross. Is it a double cross if you're just stupid enough to keep believing her? Yes, these people can't foresee anything for me. So goddamn smart. I was like, well, I could have told you that one wasn't going to pan out. But <laughs> all right. Well, why, why don't you tell us what happens, Mike? Okay, uh, a lot of double crossing. That's right. the end. Finn. And people die. <clears throat> so we start in a. Um, it's like a small town, and it's a, we start at this gas station with the name Jeff Bailey. Um, that's up on top of it. Uh, a man named Joe Stefanos shows up in town. And he's looking for the owner of the Jeff Bailey gas station, uh, where he meets a deaf kid who works there and questions him and uh, allows the kid to read his lips and try to figure out where uh, Bailey's at. He's off fishing, as he often does throughout the film, and uh, he's going to be back soon. So Joe goes to the local diner uh, across the road from the gas station and sits down to wait for Jeff to come back from his fishing trip. We're introduced to the um, next small side character of the film, whose name is Jim. He's the uh, the local sheriff, uh, or at least he works for the local sheriff in this little town. And uh, he comes into the uh, the cafe as well and starts talking with the uh, proprietor and asking about Bailey and and his his longtime friend Kath or sorry not Kathy, um, his longtime friend um, that he grew up with, uh, who has he has his crush on. This guy's. He's a he's the friend zone for the uh, this love triangle that's been going on with Bailey and and this girl. Um, cafe owner says that Bailey's off fishing again with her, and that's kind of like the rumor that they're kind of together. But anyways, Jim doesn't like that. Um, Joe overhears this, and uh, we then go over to um, Bailey and uh, the girl. What well, do you remember what the girl's name is? I forgot her name. Anne. And so Anne and 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 Jeff. 
are they're out fishing and they're they're talking about their future and settling down um the uh the kid shows up and tells jeff that uh joe's looking for him in town kind of gives him a warning um so jeff heads back to town meets up with joe at the uh this diner and is told that this man named wit is looking for him uh with his, from somebody from his past so jeff takes Anne kind of uh, on this car ride and explains his past and we go into a flashback of what of three years prior or something like that of of his of dealing with this man wit and why he's being looked for and you know kind of his origin story uh turns out jeff was a private detective and uh working for uh investigation company in new york city with his with his partner uh jack fisher they are meeting with wit who has been uh, recently shot uh four times by his i his girlfriend of the time, whose name is Catherine. And, uh, Witt says that she, Catherine, um, took $40,000 of his money and, and fled to, uh, uh, somewhere out, out of state. Witt, uh, offers Sterling, uh, the sum of $5,000 plus expenses to track down Catherine and, uh, bring her back with or without the money. So he's kind of, Witt's definitely a, a wealthy kind of a, I think he's a gambler or he runs this business. He's kind of like a gangster mobster. I don't know what you call him, but he's a, he's definitely rich because he doesn't really care much about the 40000 as much as he does care about getting uh, Catherine back. Uh, Sterling accepts and starts tracking down Catherine and finds that she had fled down to uh, Acapulco where she's been kind of uh, hiding out. Um, Sterling tracks her down, kind of waits for her and at you know, introduces himself or whatever. He sets it up so they dump, they bump into each other. Uh, and Catherine begins to seduce Sterling. Or not Sterling, sorry. Um, uh, Bailey. So Catherine begins to seduce Bailey into uh, falling in love with her. And uh, they decide that they're going to they're gonna hide out there together. And they end up uh, having a little bit of an affair down there. But uh, it's, you know, short-lasted uh, as Wit kind of shows up with uh, Joe as well. And uh, kind of calls... <clears throat> Bailey out for not getting the job done, but uh, they, you know, he still has faith in him that he'll get it done, and so this kind of leads uh, Bailey and and Catherine to feel like they gotta they gotta start kind of going back on the run, and so they for a number of I don't know months or something like that they're they're going around uh, the world kind of running away from Wit and anybody who's kind of pursuing them, and Fisher even his partner who's also kind of looking for him, and that kind of takes us all the way through kind of the flashback scene that uh, they eventually get tracked down by Fisher and uh, Fisher he confronts Bailey and says that he's he's you know he wants I think it's like forty thousand dollars of the the money that Catherine's been holding um which they don't have obviously well Catherine keeps saying she doesn't have it they get into this fight in this cabin out in the woods and Bailey and Jeff uh while they're they're tussling around Catherine pulls out a gun and and kills Fisher, and uh, she runs away, gets in the car, and flees. And that's the last time Bailey ever saw uh, Catherine until he went to this little small town where he met Anne and tried to start a new life. And uh, that comes to kind of the the modern uh, day where now Wit has tracked him down finally, and Bailey's on his way to go and see what uh, what what's calling him in about since you know he didn't accomplish his original deal with Wit. Okay. Before we shit on this movie, uh, <laughs> I thought the dialogue was phenomenal. Very tight. Yeah, so that, I guess that's one of the keynotes of a noir, but like the wittiness of it all. But like this was one-liners before one-liners. 
Mm-hmm. Like where Avengers was like quippy but stupid, everything here was like there is very clever uh clever script writing, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when he's when she's like, "Oh, that's some good luck." He's like, "Or a big sign." <laughs> like because Jeff Bailey's it, name was yeah. on the sign. <laughs> Um, yeah, and even when they meet in in Acapulco, like the the flirty banter, like really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it was not done very well. <laughs> the single <laughs> aerial shot. <laughs> there was always... like a three second clip from presumably I, I don't know an airplane, I guess. B fifty two. It was plane. so bad and not even necessary. It always I mean, just seems like they strapped the yeah, cameraman of, to the bottom of the aircraft and just like <laughs> he's just holding on like for all, dear life trying to get the shot. All the all kind of aerial shots of this time period were always kind of like that though. I feel like it's the well, it was definitely was kind of the beginning of experimenting with airplanes and, and helicopters in your movies. Most of it was it's, you know shot on sets, but a lot of the outdoor stuff that they shot was just you know far away kind of scenery shots and somebody came up with the great idea to put on an airplane. I really do actually wonder how they did those back then. It was 1947, so paratroopers needed a job after World War II ended. <laughs> um, yeah, because I remember, was it Night of the Hunter, where there was like a really, really shaky aerial long take that yes. was... <laughs> yeah. It was like on a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, it's like they had just like a long fishing rod or something that they were dangling the camera from. It was bouncing around everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um so i have a lot of like just minor life problems in this like <laughs> the so they walk into the diner and you know it's like coffee for me lots of cream please you know just that kind of stuff and then he goes she's like can i make you a sandwich or something and he's like okay she then proceeds to pull out a machete Oh, yeah. to, like, butter this bread <laughs> <laughs> and then just puts either mayo or butter on it and then just a slice of turkey and hands it to him and i would have been like i'm not paying for this sandwich like well he did he didn't pay for it so (laughs) oh (laughs) touche that's why she makes it with turkey mayo times are tough man and the war was on (laughs) (laughs) Um, i was just like what kind of diner makes that shit and then like oh i had so many problems with that sandwich well she had to turn in all her knives for the war effort so (laughs) she got back a machete from the war did any of you guys get like minor born vibes from uh jeff bailey uh i will say when he fights fisher right literally all they do is they just punch each other in the face repeatedly just (laughs) whap whap (laughs) i think it's for like two minutes of them just punching each other in the face but it's like the strikes are like super fast so the sound, the foley is just like. Yeah, it's, I think it's they, like uh, the weird hybrid of like modern fight scenes where there's like the quick choreography and everything happens so fast and they're doing shit and like old timey like Adam West Batman. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's like if you took two boxers that were training on a heavy bag and then put them together. I think what yeah. they, it, it almost looks like what they did to film it was they did it in slow motion and then sped the film up. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, almost. That yeah. <laughs> but just neither of them made any attempt to protect themselves at all. Just <laughs> as far as like old timey fights go, it wasn't like the most egregious one I've seen. Not like in the yeah. killing where he walks in and just starts throwing people. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
So we already mentioned in the intro the crazy amount of smoking in this movie. Yeah. I actually counted there was 36 cigarettes being lit. And zero of those were finished. Yeah. <laughs> no, they, think, they think, just smoked them that fast. They smoke two puffs, they toss it, then they look to their left to start another conversation and light another cigarette. Uh-huh. <laughs> I will say there were very few like anachronisms throughout because when you're counting cigarettes, you pay attention to, well, is that, is that a new cigarette or was that from the old scene? They, they were very good about consistency with the cigarettes between cuts i mean i think there was a a lot of intentionality about it right i think there was even like specific camera work they did to emphasize the smoking um i I think they were like lighting it you know specifically to you know really uh emphasize like the clouds of smoke and stuff it must have smelled terrible so there was a a specific instance of that um roger ebert did a write-up on this or whatever and during a screening he was able to talk to robert mitchum he actually mentioned like the crazy amount of cigarette smoking in this and um there was actually a scene they they kind of made a joke out of it when he first goes to see uh wit and he's like he offers him a pack and he's like cigarette and robert mitchum had just carried a cigarette onto the scene, not like <laughs> it's just his own. One. <laughs> yeah, and he held up and he held it up and was just said smoking, and uh, <laughs> they left it in. But yeah, it was like the offering him a cigarette was in the script, but like him already having a cigarette in his hand was not. <laughs> There's so much cigarette smoking. It's like basically Pineapple Express. Like the actors brought their own weed. They didn't need. <laughs> well. And then Robert Mitchum died of lung cancer and emphysema, so they could have called that one. Yeah, I, uh, I have a theory that the reason why they're throwing their cigarettes after two puffs is during the. You got to imagine how many takes they were doing for each one of these scenes, and how many cigarettes these guys were actually smoking. <laughs> like, I bet you all of so them dry. were sick by the end of like each cut. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the the actors who are uh, eating in scenes and they have like assistants with like little buckets that run over after each take and they spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, what The thing I noticed in the beginning of this movie, though, was not so much the cigarettes, but the fact that everyone just throws lit matches everywhere. And yeah, they right? light on the first time. No one ever fucks up a, la- a match light. Like, <laughs> God damn no, it. They actually it did. The, the very oh. first one when... Um, uh, God damn it! I'm so bad with these names today. It's it's Anne, and she's chucking yeah. those. <laughs> yeah, Jeff and Anne, their first scene together. She he puts a cigarette in his mouth. She goes to light it, and the first one like doesn't light, so she lights the second one. <laughs> and then she just Both. chucks it over her shoulder. Yeah, in California, <laughs> <laughs> we have no problems with you know fuel sources and ignition sources. So I I have an issue. And it's going to pop up again. This film, generally, with the plot, is kind of good. Like, it's pretty tight and easy to follow. He makes some rationalizations that you're like, well, that was fucking lucky. Like, he's like, ah, so I found out she'd been vaccinated. So, there's only one place she could have gone. Acapulco, Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait a goddamn second. I was like, what did she get vaccinated for? That's kind and, of uh, important. And what like, was his rationale? She was like, she packed bags, but they were overweight, you know, by like 90 pounds. So I just followed those 90 pounds of extra baggage. And <laughs> what? Uh, he's like, yeah. no trunk? No, suitcases. But like eight of them. I'm like, well, that equals a trunk, I would assume. 
<laughs> yeah, he goes to a club and uh, to get his first information, and the person he interviews is like, ah, she probably went to Florida or something, somewhere warm. And from there... <laughs> somewhere like, warm. You don't get vaccinated to go to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, she get vaccinated for, like, yellow fever? Because that would be, like... An, an important thing like what'd she get vaccinated for and like he's like mexico mm. and i'm like well that's a small country luckily hey, can <laughs> i just say though after having shot a man and stolen forty thousand dollars the equivalent of half a million back then uh she went out of her way to get vaccinated <laughs> to, to flee the country oh yeah i mean you gotta enjoy your forty thousand dollars you want to die of dengue or whatever <laughs> You know, the entire time he sits down with her um, and she's like, I, I shot him, but I didn't take the money and I, I hated him. And oh, my God, he's still alive. I'm just thinking the entire time of like, you know, the Brooklyn Nine-Nine scene where he's like, cool motive, still murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just supposed to be uh, understandable because you hated him. I just was wondering if he sat in Puerto Vallarta for like six months and was like, well, I guess she's not here. And then just went to the next Mexican beach town. Like, <laughs> I think his his reasoning was like everybody goes through Acapulco for some reason. Like I've never thought of Acapulco as this kind of hub, right? Like, there's like a lot. She could have gone to La Paz. She could have gone to like Tijuana. You were and saying Sonata. it's kind of the writing's kind of tight. The writing's I don't know if it's tight. I I think it's. Let me clarify. The script writing, like the dialogue, oh, yeah. not, yeah. not, not yeah. so much everything, anything else. No, the, the I don't plot understand. is... <laughs> I don't understand Jeff at all. Like, his motives are, he's always talking about not killing and, you know, has a moral obligation to be a good guy. Uh, but everybody refers to him as, like, some kind of dirtbag. Even he calls himself, like, a bad, like, bad news and stuff like that. But he's okay with this girl shooting a guy four times and then immediately falling in love with her because she's hot. Like she's hot, that's the, Mike. That's the only reason <laughs> before they even have a conversation. He's like, yep, I'm going to hit that. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, well, damn, I guess I'm not seeing that $40,000. Come here, you. <laughs> I mean, kind of the consistent theme of the movie and whether this is good or bad, you know, take as you will, but it's, uh, it's Jeff knowing you know what he's getting into and doing it anyway right like he we'll get into it in a minute but like he even like you know verbally calls out that he's being framed and like they've given him a glass for him to put fingerprints on but he's still there and he's still doing it he's still and, touching yeah. everything i know what you're and, doing you know, and i don't like it <laughs> you know and i'll definitely say that's not like a writing oversight right like that's not like oh we we goof because you know we're joss whedon and we can't remember like how to keep character motives in mind that's definitely intentional you know but whether that's you know makes it a better movie or not up to you if, if i knew i was getting framed and i knew that they wanted my fingerprints but i had to go there to get information and continue to push the plot along i would just put on a pair of gloves like they would throw their whole <laughs> or, plan off can, can i see a napkin thank you i think i think there's glasses. a level of there's a level of arrogance in Jeff, which I really like uh, about it. Because like Jack's saying, he's constantly putting himself in compromising situations. But I think in his mind, he's like, he thinks he's uh, more clever. Like he's going to get out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I saw that throughout the entire film. I'm not quite sure how to phrase it, but I think there's like a level of like indifference or weariness too, right? Like he's kind of... Kind of like Robert Mitchum. <laughs> 
yeah, he's <laughs> he kind of doesn't care. Like he knows, you know, this is trouble. But yeah. He just immediately though goes like, Well, I guess I'm just gonna ruin this whole case. Like <laughs> on on that yeah. note, sorry before we veer off. Yeah, no, Ro- so Robert Mitchum, uh he he'd constantly show up to film and just like ask the script person what his lines were. <laughs> and uh Jane Greer was like, Do you not learn your lines? And he's like, Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess. He's sad. You're the dame that's gonna kill me. <laughs> so like that this this character of Jeff is just Robert Mitchum. A little bit of oh, so that's where Marlon Brando learned how to just show up to set and not say anything in the script. <laughs> oh man. Robert Mitchum was in Night of the Hunter, I forgot. Yeah, he was love and hate or whatever. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was the child killer. Oh yeah. my god. I literally forgot everything about Night of the Hunter. <laughs> um That's where he actually got the kid from this movie. On a on a happier note. He <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> made him. Um No, I'm saying Kurt, that his character from Night Night of the Hunter uh oh. chasing that boy down the whole time. That's the where the kid came from at the gap. Don't worry about it. We can move on. <laughs> I was no, gonna let's say explain this joke. How how <laughs> well, young Kurt Douglas is, but go ahead. Oh yeah, and I'm cutting all of that. <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely like word salad <laughs> from all of us. Was anyone thrown off by the French casino in Acapulco? Yeah, I was wondering why they started speaking French. Oh, like what what? Like when they speak Spanish? <laughs> um lots of Mexico was formerly a French colony. Like the it was Cinco de Mayo is celebrating when the Mexican army beat the French army. I thought it was the Spanish. Well, I mean, yes, but like, hey, the more the more you know. The Spanish um, uh, definitely like settled Mexico, and I'm very rusty on this, but uh, yeah, Cinco de Mayo, for example, is celebrating Mexico beating the French in Mexico. Oh, well, I'm I'm a little more learned now. Thank you. I guess a colony is the wrong way to phrase it, but the French definitely had their fingers in that pie on a number of occasions. Fun right. fact, there is an annual French festival in Acapulco. Oh, well, I'm the asshole. It, it took you this long <laughs> to realize. Carry on. You know, going through that, the, the, the fact that they went to a casino, so the, their first date, so Bailey, you know, meets with... Kathy and Kathy says that she likes going and drinking bourbon at this bar and so Bailey goes and he hangs out at that bar each night until Kathy shows up uh, second night she shows up really late they have a shot of bourbon they they leave immediately they go to the casino she loses a bunch of money they leave immediately <laughs> and they go to some kind of like shipwreck out on a beach with like a bunch of fishing nets and then she immediately has Stockholm Syndrome like that's how long it took them to fall in love well so I'm glad you circled back to that. I was going to say, like, I, I don't find it all that unbelievable uh, for two reasons. One, it, did a, it didn't do the greatest job of showing the, the passage of time, but th- there was a good, you know, time span there. It wasn't like day one. He was like, yep, I'm running away with this girl. They spent um, a long enough time for Kurt Douglas to be like, I got to go check on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
too, it fits the uh, the noir narrative with the femme fatale, right? Like, and Jane Greer plays it extremely well too. Like, she's uh, I I I can totally believe that she won him over, uh, especially with in possession of half a million fucking dollars. But um, yeah, I don't yeah. find that all, all that unbelievable. I mean, yeah, from That's from true. her side, it it makes sense, right? Because she's a a manipulator, right? right. She yeah. instead of running, yeah. she's gonna seduce him. Yeah, and like you know, is is she actually in love with him? Well, I don't know, probably not, right? From his Maybe. side, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I mean, I, I guess that is kind of the film noir archetype, right? Like the sort of uh, the private eye or whatever who thinks of himself sort of as like a noble, you know, knight in shining armor who falls for a woman with a, a sad story. Yeah. Yeah. And in um, the classic, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I don't know where I was going with that. Yeah. And in the classic, so, <laughs> so in, in the classic, uh, femme fatale, you know, narrative, she's extremely intelligent and uses her fe- fe- femininity guile her feminine <laughs> fatality yes, yes as a weapon to be fatal you know like uh, um yeah no she exploits like she knows she knows what she has and and utilizes it you know so all i can think about is i want to see mike's movie like from earlier where she walks in and he just rails a line of coke and goes i'm gonna tap that <laughs> <laughs> walks over to the table and they both just do another line of coke. <laughs> I just want to see this movie now. I, I was considering like chewing bubble gum as a vice. That would ma- would have made a <laughs> just a big, just huge, bigly chew or like a chaw. Like they, got, like, they all do. They just keep adding dipping to tobacco. It. <laughs> Everyone just spitting on the carpet. <laughs> I find it challenging to like really dig into um, sort of like this relationship, right? Because he does fall in love fast, right? And she is, he he seems even like aware that he might be being manipulated. Maybe not quite at first, but um, but it, it's so much like definitely an intentional choice that it's hard to like, it, it feels wrong to like complain about it on the merits of like bad writing. Well, and yeah, but like it, it's also uh, still does kind of push believability almost. To a point, but you got to think about it. Like, so you're this private eye, you're tracking down this lady in Acapulco. It's a nice place. You're probably a little three sheets to the wind because you've just been slamming bourbon waiting for her to show up for some reason instead of doing your job. (laughs) Um, And then this, like, gorgeous woman comes in and flirts with you and stuff. Maybe they're not in love, but it's not crazy to think that he'd indulge this for a while. You know? just lonely. Yeah, like... I uh, them just kind of fooling around and stuff makes sense and um men have done dumber things than letting a woman get away with forty thousand dollars you know because she's pretty like <laughs> i think i think that this whole part is pretty believable i have issues with like how we get to these places but <laughs> <laughs> like just why are we in acapulco what a hell of a dart shot you know but Uh, Just to kind of come back to the sort of like um, the meta narrative, right? Because this whole scene from like meeting Wit to Acapulco is a flashback, right? And it's sort of told to his his new lover or girlfriend or whatever, right? Yeah. She is so blasé about all of this, right? And she's like, oh, you totally were in love with this other woman and uh, you and her killed your partner. 
okay, whatever. Thanks for telling me. Like, we've all got a past. She, her character is a product of the times because that character put into a modern film would be like, what the hell? But, like, her from a 1947's perspective where it'd be like, yeah, and a good woman just says, oh, okay, I will. I love you. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, she's, you know, definitely there is just like a narrative device, right? Yeah. But also, it's like uh, you're you're taking this in stride. You're, just, you're taking this really well. Imagine driving my car and being like, like looking over to my wife and be like, "I got a story to tell you. You're not gonna like it." So there was Acapulco, Mexico, and this hot, hot lady comes in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm real drunk, right? I'm supposed to be arresting this chick, but she is hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, me and my hot ex-girlfriend killed my partner. Um, so there I go. <laughs> we go to a cabin in the woods. Did I mention how hot she is? <laughs> oh god. <laughs> but but she's out of the picture. <laughs> and you know, I would have been with her forever, but she shot a guy and ran away. <laughs> so now I'm here with you. I love you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, she doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> we say this a lot, I think, um, not not even as not even limited to older older movies, but the kind of ignorant love, I guess. And this goes for both Jeff and Anne in this case, but like, I don't know. It's not extremely unbelievable. Like there I, I think situations like this happen. You know, people are Throughout history, people are, like, all of these murderers and thugs and gangsters, like, all have, like, loyal significant others, you know what I mean? That's true. <laughs> A lot of mafia guys are married. <laughs> yeah. Now, on the on the other hand, for the actual, like, screenwriting portion of this, uh, so if I had just shot a man and stolen $40,000, I probably wouldn't log it in my check balance book <laughs> wouldn't make hey a balanced checkbook is the key to a happy life all right and it's the only line deposited forty thousand. <laughs> yeah she didn't do like 10 here and then like another 10 it was forty thousand on the dot yeah yeah these banks are like not asking any questions i mean i, I get this is like you know 1947 and but... did she steal a check like she didn't steal thirty nine thousand eight hundred and ninety five dollars. It was forty thousand. She, <laughs> she took cash and <laughs> counted it out to be very specific. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the first step. I'm missing forty thousand dollars. Okay, let's go look, ask local banks. And she doesn't <laughs> log any expenditures in there either. Just deposits. <laughs> the next thing. So I I'm hired to find somebody. I find them. I decide then to run away with them. I probably wouldn't go to San Francisco, <laughs> like driving distance from where I came from. You know what I mean? <laughs> didn't it's like they, Hobbit could, logic. Did he say that? Like, fucking went, anywhere. Did he say they went to New York for a little bit, but they got bored of New York? Well, oh. his his only justification is that he told them he told Wit that they were heading or that she was heading south, but they went north. Got him. Gotcha. <laughs> well, using that logic, Wit would have sat in Guatemala in bars for eight months just <laughs> waiting. Um, so this brings another transition in the plot that I have a huge issue with, and this is them going to the cabin and uh, because Fisher spots them at the racetrack, and like 
there's this double double cross or not even a double cross but like oh psych i wasn't following you i was following her and so like he jeff leads him where he thinks he's leading him on this big like anti like tail operation right and he's going all over the place and not staying anywhere and this whole thing and then comes back and then they go into the cabin and he's like oh he didn't follow me he followed her this whole time and i was like so does that just mean you were just roaming around greater california and no one was following you (laughs) this entire time (laughs) like how good of private eye are you to notice that no one's following you after like eight days of doing random shit (laughs) well when there's only 15 car models out there like i've seen that car before (laughs) i was like what a waste of time this whole thing was like Uh oh jesus so i i will say this was one of the only of the kind of early era movies on this list we've seen so far where i actually felt suspense Like in Night of the Hunter, like the whole thing's a chase, right? In theory, should have been on the edge of my seat the whole time. (laughs) Eh. Uh, But here, when Wit shows up to uh, Acapulco, right, as they're about to leave, and um, Wit shows up to Jeff's room, and Kathy's supposed to also show up to his his room, and like that that whole like just trying to avoid each other kind of thing, I, I, I mean, I... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually felt the suspense in that. And he spills the water so that Wit doesn't see her walk in. Yeah, it was definitely like, how are they going to get out of this uh, moment for me? Yeah. Um, So I I thought that was really cool. And I like the interaction between Kurt Douglas and him. Uh, I really liked Kurt Douglas's character in this. He was very good at being like the suave, but you can tell he's kind of evil. It was good. Yeah. but like how he's just like I told you I'm looking for her I can't find her and and Wit's like begrudgingly not acknowledging it like you could see he's like you're boning her aren't you <laughs> like, <laughs> you just see it in his face he's like you're having sex with her um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, really I, like that interaction that you just described like it was that was one of the better parts for sure I think Wit is like a, a fairly interesting character and I think he he plays the role well in this movie right where he's he's kind of like a red herring he's like a a false lead on who like the the villain of this is mm-hmm. because you know Wit is like bad but he's not the villain right right even though early in the movie you might sort of suspect he is he's a patsy <laughs> yeah they even do the whole like there's a knock at the door while they're all in his room and it's like Yes, could he have answered that more suspiciously? Yeah, and I think that was intentional. I think um, Wit kind of sees that, like, ah, this, you know, this is it. And then he opens the door and it's like somebody giving him his shoes back or some shit. (laughs) Wit's problem is he has incompetent help, but we can discuss that later. Um, Should we carry on with the plot a bit? I think we could just finish it off, right? Yeah, take it to the end. Yeah, pretty much. The first half was the flashback. Second half is going forward. <clears throat> the flash forward. Yeah. So <laughs> we're. So would you say we're out of the past? Oh. Into the present. <laughs> Into the frying pan. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> All right. So uh, yeah. So Jeff finishes out the flashback with Anne in the car ride to uh, go see Sterling at his uh, Tahoe estate. When Jeff arrives. 
and meets with Sterling. He um, is told by Sterling that he has a problem with with some of his taxes, and Uncle Sam's trying to collect uh, on the fact that he hasn't paid a million dollars worth of taxes to the government. (laughs) (laughs) And you thought he was having a problem with (laughs) $40,000. Yeah, now we know why he was fine with not getting the 40 Gs. So Sterling says that, you know, Jeff still kind of owes him one since he really never collected on the first uh, um, investigation into Kathy. Big surprise. It turns out Kathy went back to Sterling and she is there at the estate as well. And uh, she she uh, tries to apologize to Jeff, but Jeff's not having any of it. Jeff doesn't like her anymore. Um, however, Jeff still does like her. And so <laughs> they Jeff agrees to go and, uh, you know, look into this this lawyer in San Francisco for Sterling um, and try to kind of figure out this whole this, you know, the the tax situ- situation for whatever for Sterling. Um, this starts kind of a. Uh, the double cross for Jeff, and he he's kind of catches on a little early since he's already kind of been double crossed by uh, Kathy once already. Um, Jeff's de- like his job is he needs to go and find this guy called Els uh, uh, in San Francisco and uh, meet with his secretary. Um, she's kind of the uh, she has this, the in with um, with this um, this lawyer or whatever. So Jeff meets this uh, the secretary and says that. The you know he's he needs to go up and pick her up from uh, the lawyer's apartment. It's the it's the lawyer right that they're they're trying to get to. Yeah, because he has the uh... he has the documents that prove he's like blackmailing wit. Right, right. So yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of moving pieces right here, and and so he the deal is that he needs to go up and meet with um, the secretary and the lawyer and 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 pretend to be this girl's cousin. Uh, however. When he gets up there, he going into this place, he kind of realizes that, that there's something not right with the situation, and he goes in. He kind of uh, blows the uh, the whistle on the fact that he's not the cousin, and he's working, you know, for for Sterling or whatever. Um, Jeff kind of like kind of you know tips him off that something's going to be happening, uh, and before they leave, uh, but uh, then Jeff decides that he's gonna he's gonna tail the secretary instead of going into the. I think she tells him to like go back home or whatever. But she and then, but uh, Jeff, uh, he meets up with this like cab driver that he knows in San Francisco and starts tailing um, the this lady around the secretary Carson. Um, after a while, he goes back to the uh, the apartment where he met with the lawyer, and he finds him uh, dead in his in his uh, apartment there. So Jeff takes the body next door, hides it away, so he has a little bit more time before the police show up and frame him for being the killer. Um, and instead, Jeff goes to. Uh, uh, Carson's apartment, and he uh, he overhears um, Kathy arranging a um, uh, the discovery of of Elle's body right in the in that in the apartment where he was just killed. And so Kathy's was going to call the the co- the uh, the doorman or whatever, and he'd go up and then find the body, and then they were going to frame it all on Jeff. Uh, however, Jeff moved the body, so when uh, she makes a call, there's nobody there. She freaks out, and uh, she you know starts to kind of panic about something went wrong and she calls Sterling and says this is you know she doesn't have the documents or whatever um the Jeff I think he's he he kind of confronts her again and uh tells um Kathy that like you know uh, he's going to go and get the documents uh and she's going to kind of help him out again and so 
I don't know, like their whole like weird thing, like they trust each other, don't trust each other thing throughout the whole film is really confusing as far as like the plot drives go. Uh, anyway, so they trust each other again, but not really. Jeff's now, you know, considering uh, getting the papers himself. So Stefanos shows up and tells Kathy that he killed uh, the lawyer in the apartment, uh, which, you know, Jeff, I think, said that the, the body wasn't there. So I don't know if this is like a good spot to stop real quick because there's a lot that's going to happen in the next section. I don't really want to push through it yet. Okay. Yeah, a lot of I agree. A lot of triple double crosses here. Yeah. My favorite thing about this movie is that how nonchalant and and collected all the characters are. All of them are constantly in situations where, in like a a movie today, it would be like somebody's getting their ass beat or. It's it's like that like this is it it's over kind of thing, but anytime like Jeff is caught or caught in a lie or physically caught is just like yeah cool just want a cigarette like, <laughs> yeah like, yeah like even from from the beginning uh there were scenes between Jeff and uh, Joe I guess where they're like and and Wit too where they're all like they all kind of know they're being double crossed and stuff but there's never a confrontation. Everyone's just being super cool, and I and I, I really like the interactions in that respect. It's almost like a competition. Like three people walk in a room, and it's like a game of uh, was it mafia where one of us knows that one of the person is the killer? And we got to whisper and figure it out. Like everyone knows that everyone's double crossing each other in this room, so everyone's just like trying to figure out which direction the cross is coming from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're all very. I think cool is the a good way of phrasing it because. Yeah, they're, they're like very unflappable, right? Even in, you know, when we get to the finale and, you know, like, you know, people get caught or stuck or whatever, and we'll get to that in a second. Everyone just like kind of a mix of resigned or still also like think they can get out of it, you know? Yeah, except Joe. Joe's an idiot and can't figure things out. But like, yeah, he, he kills Joe... the lawyer. And she's like, are you sure you killed him? He's like, well, who the hell did I kill then? <laughs> uh oh he's like someone died <laughs> and Joe's like oh we gotta find Bailey he's like I don't know if I'll be in more trouble if I find him or more trouble if I don't <laughs> it's like okay Joe you're, uh, Joe, you're I'm gonna over ass- your head I'm gonna assume more trouble if you don't <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> Joe's the only one not participating in a double cross so he's really gotta yeah. be scared Joe had everything to be like the always the groomsman character right to to jeff but even that didn't happen and i and i kind of like that where joe's just like doing his own thing you know there's none of this like weird jealousy thing between them he's just like yeah i'm like i'm here because he pays me you know what i mean (laughs) there i go killing again (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i guess we can jump into the plot a little bit more because there wasn't that much going on um really it's just the finale at this point yeah 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 so yeah so anyway so jeff got those documents um he gives them to this uh delivery service to hold for him and kind of co-signs for it um he gets captured by sterling's uh henchman or whatever and he gets taken uh to to uh they're back to their office where he stole the documents and he kind of convinces them not to bother with wit and uh, offers an exchange for the papers that um Kathy needs to, you know, give up the fact that she uh, um, wrote this document stating that it was Jeff who killed Fisher and she would attest to it in court. So 
two or the uh, the murders of these two people now have been pinned on Jeff, and the police are kind of waiting for him. Um, and they assume that he's going to go back to Bridgeport because he has his his other love interest Anne is there, right? So the police are kind of I think uh, it's Jim. He's saying that he he knows where Sterling's or sorry where Jeff's going to be, and he'll be able to find out just by following Anne. At this point, Kathy orders Stefanos uh, to uh, to follow Jeff's friend, the kid, the the deaf kid from the beginning, and uh, he does and follows uh, this follows the, the kid to um, this gorge where the kid is. Uh, he starts fishing in this river, and Stefano sees that uh, Jeff has been hobo camping out there in the woods and climbs up on this <laughs> rock and is going to take the shot. Uh, to kill Jeff, but is but uh, the kid spots Stefanos before he, he can fire his gun, and uses his fishing rod to snag his jacket and pulls him off the cliff edge where St- uh, Stefanos falls to his death and dies in, in the rocks in the river. Um, the first on scene kill I've ever seen of a man using a fishing <laughs> pole to kill somebody. <laughs> All right, should have been a scene in Born. So Jeff goes back to um, Serling's place to confront Kathy. And also tell them that uh, Stefanos is dead. Um, he uh, he reveals Kathy's double cross that he, that she pulled on uh, Sterling, and uh, says that they should pin the murders rightfully on on her. Well, except for you know the one in the gorge, they want to chalk that one up to suicide. Uh, but the deal is that you know St- uh, Sterling has to get rid of this um, this affirmation whatever paperwork that. Uh, that was given to the police saying that he was the murderer. And instead, uh, Kathy needs to admit to killing Fisher and, uh, Stefanos, obviously he killed the, the dude in the room, but they're just going to pin both of those on, on Kathy. Sterling says that he accepts and promises that Kathy, um, uh, that'll kill her if she doesn't cooperate with turning herself in. So either she goes to prison or he's going to slow death her over time. Um, Jeff goes back to, to Anne and meets in the woods where she, he's followed by Jim and Jim kind of overhears their conversation. And, and Jeff tells Anne that he's, you know, completely out of love with Kathy and that he's going to come back for her and promises that he didn't do any of the murders and uh, she believes him. I did not kill her. I did not. <laughs> Jeff returns back to Sterling's place, right, and finds uh, Kathy is now shot Sterling again, but this time I succeeded in, in killing him. Uh, shot him again. And, and she she starts to she goes into this kind of psychotic ramble about going back to the way it was and that they should run away together and go back to Acapulco and live out the rest of their days um down there as long as they can. At and gunpoint. Uh, yeah. And so Jeff Jeff like, you know, this this crazy lady waving a gun at him he, so he agrees of course and she goes up to pack the bags and he uh, he uses this opportunity to uh, phone somebody we we don't know who uh, but it, it, we find out that it's the police and uh, while they're driving in their car um, the, a roadblock is is ahead of them and uh, she pulls out her gun and and shoots Jeff in a struggle and uh, a dude pops up with a Thompson and just lights the car up and both of them uh, are shot and killed and, and dead in this car. Uh, and the final scene is back at the funeral in uh, Bridgeport where Anne um, goes to the the kid and asks him if Jeff was lying and was actually leaving with um, Kathy. And uh, the kid, uh, the kids, it confirms that Jeff probably was running away with the rich lady with the gun. And that's the end of the movie. And which is sort of like the uh, Inception spinning top of 
1947. <laughs> right. Well, and I like, too, that because he wants her to know so that she'll start a new life with friend zone guy. And all she needs to hear is, <laughs> yeah, he was going to run away. And then she's like, okay, fuck him. Batter up. Come here, you. <laughs> she just gets back in the car and is like, okay, I guess you're my husband now. No. But we knew I mean, that. Uh, we knew I think that that's not what actually was happening, though. Kathy was just crazy. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's um, a little ambiguous as to why the kid says that. I, that's kind of like the Inception spinning top of it, right? Like, did he know? There's a couple like what ifs uh, as far as why why the kid did that. One of the one of my theories is like it was for Anne's benefit. Like, hearing that this guy was running away with her, I, I don't know, in some fucked up way, may have, like, eased her a little bit. Um, the second, I I thought, was that Jeff kind of told the kid to say that. Like, he yes, was going to run off regardless. And, uh, again, it would have kind of... Ha- it it would have catalyzed Anne moving on. The third thing, and what I... Like, what should have happened, in theory, is that to make this a better movie is that he survived somehow and he is running off. But, but again, like to not have Anne like wait up for him kind of thing. I know that's not really, you know, likely what happened, but I think it would have been better. Some sort of hint that he's alive. Yeah. And then Moby starts playing as he gets <laughs> up out of the- well, Jesus we, Christ, we kinda, it's Jeff Bailey. <laughs> we kind of get that because at the, the, the last scene in the movie, the kid kind of salutes Jeff's name on, on the gas station sign. And that kind of left the ambiguity of, like, the whole, like, I got you, fam. Like, <laughs> have fun in fuck Acapulco. Yeah. But unfortunately, nothing led up to that. So yeah. it's unlikely. I, I am very confident that he is dead, right? It's yeah. It's not like he, like, secretly got away and the kid is covering his ass. It's like, I think it's a question of, like, the kid is telling this to Anne. And is it because he thinks it's what she needs to hear? he thinks like it's what's true or he's yeah i think it's the motivation that's interesting and jeff is definitely done so right because mm-hmm. if he's not dead then he's arrested right yeah and true. like you know and he's in prison for a long time because the dead lady he's with isn't gonna confess you know like <laughs> true and and she's definitely dead you didn't consider the possibility that maybe the kid is not very good at reading lips and just didn't understand what the question was. He's <laughs> just reading body language. <laughs> he's just not. He's, he, was, just... he was pointing to the convenience store and saying, yeah, we got beers okay. in there. <laughs> okay, that's that's my favorite explanation. <laughs> he, he's like me in Zoom meetings where he wasn't paying very much attention, so he's just kind of nodding. Nodding. <laughs> Yeah. But then she walks away sad. He's like, oh, shit. Hold on a second. Uh-huh. <laughs> to, uh. to kind of reinforce my, uh, uh, what I think, I think that's what should have happened is that, like, he should have gotten, Jeff should have gotten away with one last double cross and it shouldn't have ended with him getting shot up in a car. Like, it should have been ambiguous in that scene to kind of lead the viewers on that maybe, you know, like, he got it. He won. He won the mental, like, double chess crossing yeah. game yeah so what i'll say is i i thought this movie overall was more interesting and more uh i don't know I, I was more engaged in like the back half of it right and i think part of it was like seeing like these double and triple crosses play out and thinking like oh man how is jeff going to get out of this right because you know that's that's kind of an element of a film noir right is like they're you know the good guy always has one trick left up his sleeve right and 
you know, it, it manages to outwit and there's something. And I kind of appreciated that at the end of the day, he didn't, right? Like, or, you know, or like his final trick up the sleeve was to take both of them down, you know, take her down with him, right? And I thought that was a more interesting ending than diving into the river and floating ambiguously for two minutes while Moby plays and then <laughs> swimming away. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to rewind it just a tad to where the office. So he goes to get the papers that Wit is being blackmailed with at some guy's office. I don't remember whose office it is. I'm a little confused there. But so he goes in. Um, he just walks in in the service door walks up the stairs past security. Security calls the boss to be like, hey, someone's breaking into your office instead of doing what security should do and, like, stop him. So he punches the guy, knocks him out in classic 40s fashion, one punch, um, and steals the papers. He then proceeds to walk down the stairs in front of security, and they go like, what are you doing up here? It's restricted. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm good. And he just keeps walking, and they're like, well, I guess he's gone. <laughs> like... That whole thing, I was like, there was no, like, clever chase or anything. He just walks by security, and they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I I was so confused. I kind of liked that, and I this probably wasn't the intention, but I got the read that, like, those thugs were just kind of the degenerates of the group in a in a sea of characters that are extremely clever. Um, <laughs> because that, when when the thugs finally catch Jeff... Uh, the main thug, his first instinct is to is to punch uh, Jeff, who mm. then just gets like judo blocked by <laughs> by him. But that kind of <laughs> that juxtaposition between like any other character in this movie, they it would have been a battle of wits again. But mm. he like brought himself down to to physical violence, which is like uncouth, I guess. <laughs> Yes, I got that. That's the read that I got is that Mm -hmm. those guys were just kind of incompetent in the terms of this movie. You know what I mean? All right. I'll accept it. I also was waiting for um, like this burn after reading moment where he's like, I have a delivery service that has the papers and they're sending it here. I was just waiting for a note to come in and be like, the delivery service guy's requesting $50,000 or he's going to give these (laughs) notes to the. Uh, this government (laughs) it's just everyone keeps blackmailing wit whoever has these documents (laughs) now he's got to track down the the delivery service guy in acapulco (laughs) at what point does it just become easier to pay your taxes (laughs) so uh what's his name wit was has dodged a million dollars in taxes yeah which is a th- approximately thirteen million in today's dollars. It's just a pittance. When really all <laughs> he should do is start a corporation. Like <laughs> that's what I kind of like about old forties and like the older films. Like it's a problem that we could all be like, oh god, yeah, that is a problem. <laughs> He's like, I have a million dollars <laughs> in back taxes, so this whole plot unfolds. When nowadays it'd be like someone stole a million dollars in coke from me. So I need you to track it down. You know, they're, they're problems that we go like, oh, God, that is scary. The U.S. government's coming after you. The IRS is going to come after him. <laughs> I feel like I lack the attention span necessary in order to watch a film noir or 1940s film where they're talking in the transatlantic uh, accent. Because I, I don't even know what uh, what Sternly did for a living. And I'm sure they said it at some point. But I missed 
I miss so much information by the fast talking in these films. It's left super vague too. Yeah, they don't like, really reveal. It's just that he's like a bad guy. Like you, you kind of think it's from, like a mob thing. Like he's, it's like money of questionable sources. Yeah, yeah. he's some sort of crime boss ish. Well, in the <laughs> in the Wikipedia article, it says Whit Sterling is a gambling kingpin. Oh, well, course. I mean that's like sort of helpful and also like unhelpful, <laughs> right? It, uh, it it's just a lot of money of a uh, dubious origin, you know. Yeah. I think is the takeaway. I think the my problem with the end of this movie, everyone everyone's like super clever, you know, double crossing and all that. It just falls apart at the end. Like mm-hmm. people are uncharacteristically like dumb at the end of this. Yeah, she um, goes from being like the femme fatale to I'm crazy, I'll shoot all of you. <laughs> well, and that's yeah, also well, stupid is like, if you've been shot by somebody in the past, why would you allow them to keep a gun on them? Like, wouldn't you be patting her down every time she enters the room? <laughs> and, yeah. So Who keeps giving the, Kathy a gun? Yep. <laughs> There's that. There's also like, Jeff is guilty of this as well. Like, so she has sh- at this point shot two people, uh, ordered the killing of another unapologetically all of this (laughs) and he just thinks like she's just gonna walk off to jail now because he's like out mentally maneuvered her like come on dude (laughs) it's kind of paralleled by like the audience also underestimating her a lot you know yeah well i I was terrified of her the whole time when she shot Fisher out of cold blood. Oh, also, the pleasure she was getting of watching Bailey and Fisher beat the hell out of each other. Mike is oh, yeah, by yeah, yeah. default afraid of beautiful women. <laughs> with, with ones with guns, 100%. <laughs> so I think like she, for me, not once during the, the kind of end reveal between Wit, uh, Jeff, and Kathy did I believe that that was the end of the movie. You know what I mean? It wasn't mm-hmm. like, okay, well, they just figured it out. She's going to go to jail, take the rap for all this, and then uh, all we need is just one closing scene where it's all happily ever after. Like, no. We, we all knew other shit was going to go down, right? Like, Do you think uh, Do you think the cops using a Thompson gun was a little excessive? Like, I totally <laughs> believe that. The fucking well, FBI shot everybody back in those days. <laughs> yeah, I think they found like 140 bullet holes in Bonnie and Clyde's car. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway... The other thing, then this ties into that, is for Jeff to call the cops, like, that is just, it's a literal cop-out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Deus ex copina. (laughs) Yeah, nice. This whole time, he's just, like, this fucking super genius, and I thought that phone call was going to be another one of those, like, ah, like, he's, he's got her again, you know? No, he just called the cops. Yeah, so so cheap. He's like, I I can't figure this woman out. Someone should call the police. I mean, he was looking real tired there at the end. By the point he's been this badly cornered at the end, I mean, what options are left to him? He could run off to Acapulco with the hot lady, and then eventually be shot when she finds another man. Well, that's the question we ask, right? Like, what what does he? What options are left for him? And we expect someone of Jeff's caliber to have figured it out. But yeah, no, that didn't happen. How do you solve a problem like Kathy with guns? I don't like the, um, I don't know if it's a cliche, but 
I don't like the cliche in this movie where all it takes is somebody to say, I'm going to tell them you did it. And then they're like, oh, no, now you got the best of me. Now I have to do whatever you want me to do. Not realizing that if Jeff called the cops right then and told them, hey, there's a dead guy in here. The cops would show up, find her with the gun, find that Jeff didn't put his fingerprints on her gun. You know what I mean? Like an actual murder investigation would ensue. And Jeff wouldn't go to prison just because she's like, he did it. He still might go to prison for the Fisher guy. Because... That's again, that's another hearsay bullshit thing. He did it is not good enough evidence. Well, I mean, well, Mike, this is what lawyers for, are for, and we know how you feel about those. We're really putting our <laughs> hands in the court here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I will say, like, this movie seems to assume that there is no such thing as a trial, right? Where, you know, I, I feel like it'd be worst of all for Wit if things went to trial, because then his entire like, operation would be. Under scrutiny, yeah, and they'd, like, be looking for paperwork and, like, this affidavit of this one woman who says that, yeah, so-and-so shot him, right? Like, all of a sudden, I mean, there's going to be questions, right? Like, why was she there? Well, because she ran away and stole $40,000. What? (laughs) And, like, uh, wait, so he shot him why? And uh, I don't know. So so what did we learn from all this? Fuck if I know. <laughs> not to do it well, again, do I guess. Again. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, even she, even Kathy, her her characteristics fall apart at the end too. Like she's she's also extremely intelligent throughout the whole movie, and at the end, it's like, okay, Jeff, who has double crossed her x amount of times, you're just gonna expect everything to be cool, and you're gonna be in love again, and even. At the end, she knows, right? Because he, like, intentionally and terribly stalls, right? <laughs> like, he's taking forever to start the car because he didn't, like, press the choke or whatever, yeah. you know? And she knows something's up. But he, the cat, the Kathy of an hour ago in the film would have been like, nope, like, something's fucked up. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to kill you. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think there is an element of those two getting, like, progressively more frazzled and desperate as things go on, right? And... I, I, the flip side of, you know, her outwitting him is that she has sort of also hitched her wagon to him, right? Because at this point, what she's kind of like stuck with him, right? Like they, you know, they're, the, the outcomes are the same for them. So if he's stalling, there's nothing she can do about it too, right? Well, the outcomes are the same for both after Wit dies, right? Because Wit was the last like kind of person that would have corroborated a mm-hmm. lot of this yeah so mm-hmm. their plan is to run off presumably to another country and live out the rest of their lives she could have done that herself yeah you know what i mean but said she wants to take him hostage yeah I, both of them have could have gone their separate ways at this point because the the dirt they had on each other was uh, essentially nullified by wit dying yeah. i guess well, the thing is, right, like, I think their little chess match here, it isn't, like, about them winning, right? I feel like the, this chess match is the two of them sort of progressively closing off each other's, like, escapes until all of a sudden, like, neither of them can do anything, right? Because, you know, at the moment where Wit is dead, right, you know, it's, he is still on the hook for the other murders, right? She, you know, like we said, is probably going to be on the hook for Wit's murder, right? Um you know, maybe that can get pinned on him, right? But it's not like he can just walk away and not be a wanted man. It's not like she can just walk away solo and not be wanted, right? They're, 
at this point, right, like they are stuck together, right? And Well, that's what I'm saying, though, is they're wanted regardless of whether they're together or not. Mm-hmm. They're just in a more dangerous situation when they are together. I mean, I, I guess, yes. Because um... it, 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 I could buy it if them being together kind of made it so they weren't fugitives, right? But presumably they're going to run off to Mexico and either way they are fugitives the way i see it right is like does she love him probably not right I so is he so. just is he he just someone for her to sell out down the road again later or you Maybe. know it's yeah. is she delusional and thinks they're in love i, I think there's I a little that bit doesn't of that feel consi- yeah L- little column a little column b yeah i think but, i think they're they do have a little bit of something yeah i don't know i i still feel like you know looking at it right like it's um it's not a game of either of them winning right they're just making moves to make each other lose and then all of a sudden we get to the end and they're all out of moves and they both lose which i I think is kind of fitting for a film noir right like there's no there's no happy ending in this one right like everyone loses like the maltese falcon you know it's the real maltese falcon was the friends we made along the way or whatever (laughs) um or the killing where the literal last line is, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah, you know, everyone loses the money, right? Yeah. There's no Maltese Falcon. You know, it's they both lose and they both die because That's of true. this game Jim, they played. Jim kind of made it out on top of this whole thing. Yeah, he gets the girl. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's going to be a successful marriage. Yeah. We'll see. She didn't feel too, didn't seem too jazzed about She's him like, in the first place. The only right? reason I'm with you is because my real love got in a convoluted plot with a, a, mobster died you're the best the next best thing (laughs) remove jim from the movie you still have the same movie exactly (laughs) i was just waiting for jim to come up and pay the deaf kid like five dollars and say thanks and then get in the car with her (laughs) (laughs) god he's been double crossing too he double crossed the double crossers (laughs) or just a scene at the end of a little notebook and jim crosses out the Kathy and Jeff's <laughs> names. <laughs> uh, and, it, and a balanced book showing $40,000. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he calls the U.S. government on the last witness. He's like, I heard that deaf kid at the, uh, at the, at the, at the gas station's been evading his taxes. <laughs> Hasn't been reporting his tips. <laughs> or he takes off his hat and puts on another one that says IRS on it. <laughs> <laughs> And Anne's like, another one down. <laughs> like <she> just, <laughs> they were partners. <laughs> it was the IRS doing the long con. <laughs> now this is a movie I want to see. That is amazing. No, okay, I think we've hit our high note here. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything they want to add about this? Mike, you got anything? Or No, not really. <laughs> I, want, I want Mike to go first in the ranking. Yeah. I want to emphasize oh, that that deaf kid killed a man by casting a fishing pole at him and hooking him <laughs> and like fish on and just yanks him off the rocks. Like one of the best kills I've seen in a minute. So, you know, like I remember when the Born Ultimatum come, came out, right? Like everyone was like, oh my God, he fought that guy with a washcloth and it was so badass. Do you think people in 1947 were like, that kid got a guy with a fishing pole? <laughs> <laughs> and what a hell of a cast like what like 
did he overcast and then has to like kind of slowly bring it back and like hook him like <laughs> just i want to see the alternate movie where there's just like eight casts that miss and like snags on trees and shit <laughs> he's got to cut it and re <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah that was awesome Alrighty, so, you know, tidbits and trivia about the movie. Um, so this was actually, uh, we joke about this, right? Like, uh, Out of the Past 2007 remake. Well, this was remade into a movie called Against All Odds in 1984, starring Jeff Bridges. Um, so, yeah, this movie did get remade. And if you wanted the, the version without the transatlantic accent, then there you go. And more keyboard. Um, <laughs> yeah more uh more flock of seagulls yeah. <laughs> um yeah it says uh i mean there's not like tons of trivia about like these movies but mostly because there's not like a horde of angry nerd fans you know <laughs> coming in and talking about how uh, like the the avengers was like 85 pages long on wikipedia and it's like oh robert downey jr had this for breakfast on the uh, <laughs> <laughs> he would sneeze every time he had a muffin <laughs> Uh, I don't know if we get like the the budget for this movie, but it made a profit of ninety thousand um, dollars. I mean, I think it is probably. Um, That's what they reported for tax purposes. Yeah, and then <laughs> it was not based on a true story, but the the tax evasion from this movie uh, actually played out the same way. Um, <laughs> I just want to double down on how badass Robert Mitchum is. When filming started, there was a a plane accident. So the the brakes didn't work on the plane and when it landed it like crashed through a bunch of shit and like finally came to a stop, you know, everybody almost died including Robert Mitchum. And then two guys in the back were unconscious and he just walked out and fucking hitched a ride to the studio. <laughs> Like the the trivia line says, typical of Mitchum's nonchalant attitude, he quickly crawled out of the wreckage, dusted off his clothes, and thumbed a ride into town to begin filming. <laughs> so because um, he's thoroughly uh, drunk. <laughs> also on Robert Mitchum, so they they were smoking all the time, and apparently, uh, in a scene where uh, Kirk Douglas offers him a pack of cigarettes, Mitchum had... I already said this like two hours ago. Where oh, were you? <laughs> Jesus Christ, man! Hey, guys, did you know that Kirk Douglas offered him a cigarette, but Robert Mitchum had his own? So a uh, little known fact about this is uh, Robert Mitchum was actually flying in to uh, start filming and the plane crashed. <laughs> That's how few facts are. We're just going to keep repeating them. Those are our two facts. <laughs> well, um. I got one more, and it's uh, about the smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I would have gotten is I wish I would have gotten to meet Robert Mitchum, or I wish we had more Robert Mitchums, just like someone that's just totally unimpressed with their success, <laughs> just angry <laughs> to be doing anything. <laughs> so when uh, Roger Ebert did the screening that I was talking about earlier, he asked him about the smoking, and Robert Mitchum replied like, or he, he was essentially like. You know, why were you smoking so much? Was it like part of the film or, or you know, was it just because you guys smoke a lot? And Robert Mitchum was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> he's like, you haven't seen the movie? He's like, I, I'm sure I have, but I mean, whatever. Is it, like is so it, long is it ago. any good? 
<laughs> Which I movie? fucking love Robert Mitchum. <laughs> they probably just started playing the film and he's like, ah, Jesus, another old film. <laughs> he's like, hey, Kurt Douglas, I knew that guy. <laughs> I, I will say, though, like he... Um, he did die of lung cancer and emphysema, like I said, but he was also like 79 years old. <laughs> so he died so like at disp- a normal age. Yeah, so despite smoking like eight packs a day, like yeah, he lived to the ripe old age at the time. They were just built differently. <laughs> yeah. If this movie has made me anything, it's just more obsessive now with ro- the lore of Robert Mitchum. <laughs> I wonder if we'll get any more of his movies on this. I did not get this vibe from him in fucking... Night of the Hunter. No. Alrighty. So, uh, in terms of you know box office, I think we mentioned it made ninety thousand dollars. Um, you know, well regarded. I don't know that there were really Oscars or awards that it won, or if there was anything really. Um, but I, I think people regard it as like the the sort of pinnacle of film noir. Um. Yeah, I don't know what more to say about reception, like critically acclaimed, but that's yeah, that's about all you can say it's about it. It's very film noir, but it's hard to hold that against it since it's probably one of the first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, of course there were film noirs that came before it, right? But this is kind of like, uh, it's like, you know, Lord of the Rings being like the fantasy mm-hmm. movie, right? Like, you know, there's, it, it's not the first, right? It it borrows from other, you know, uh, examples of fantasy in like movies or writing, right? But even though you know it, it follows the tropes and you know subverts some, sticks to others, right? But it's it is like the quintessential, right? So, so you hold Lord of the Rings above Willow. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's the only one that was like, "Hey, I like Willow." <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, "What? What do I even say to this?" <laughs> um. All right, well let's uh let's move on to the the part that really matters where we rank it among the other movies we've seen. And um so of the now 43 movies we've seen, uh Mike, where do you put this one? I'm going to put it right between Sin City and The Bourne Ultimatum because it's a combination of both of those movies. That's <laughs> <laughs> so worse than The Maltese Falcon. Oh yeah. Okay. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, Mike's bringing the... Uh, he's method acting. He's bringing the uh, Robert Mitchum energy to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I don't know. I haven't seen either of these movies. <laughs> <laughs> so what is that? That's number 29 on my list then. Yeah, 29 for you, Mike. June? Let's go with Shane. <laughs> Pass. um okay my name is shane and i'm gonna put this one at uh 23 between anatomy of a murder and the born ultimatum since it's just a blend of both these movies (laughs) (laughs) all right well i'll go next and uh i think i'm gonna put it at number 30 between uh the born ultimatum the straight story (laughs) and sin city because it's a combination of those three movies (laughs) well is it gonna touch the born ultimatum in all our lists (laughs) 
where I would I would say that this movie is a combination of the Born Ultimatum and a Touch of Evil, which are adjacent <laughs> on my list. Uh, I'm actually going to deviate a little bit. I'm going to put this at number 14 between Ooh. Rio Bravo and Young Frankenstein. Wowie. Yeah, I got a soft spot for film noirs that are actually film noirs and or good. Um, I really like this movie. <laughs> I mean, what I will say is I feel like uh, its place on the list for me is lower than I would think, given how I liked it, mm-hmm. how much I liked it. I, because I did think this was a good movie. I thought this was enjoyable and it was clever and it was a good film noir. But I'm looking like, uh, is this better than... Maybe it is better than The Born Ultimatum, but I already put it there, so it's got to lie. But like... I don't think it's better than Kind Hearts and Coronets. I don't think it's better than Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, don't think it's better than, you know, Rain Man. So, like, this. but I, I still liked it. This movie's going to become my new King speech. I'm like, I really <laughs> love that movie. Why is it so low? <laughs> the King, King speech at the bottom half. Yeah. It's so low because you had to follow along with a gag that Mike started. <laughs> yeah. This movie's going to be, well, before I used the King speech as my bottom, like, okay, everything above this I really love and everything below I'm indifferent. But now this film is going to be the I love this movie, so everything above it I really love and everything below I... Well, now Mike's weird-ass method of rating films is bleeding over to to your list. (laughs) Do you just refer to my list as a gag? I find it very serious. (laughs) Mike's going to put movies now in between movies that it's like... (laughs) It's just pairwise groupings. I'm just more mad that the Born Ultimatum's on this list. I just keep staring at it like, why are you here? <laughs> as, as you put this movie under it? I put it above. Oh, because okay. one above. If we, <laughs> if we spend one more episode spending 10 minutes on why Shane put the King's speech somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved on now. No, we'll just, you haven't. Well, that's because this is the episode where I move on. I'm also staring at Ratatouille in a weird way, but... <laughs> well, that's a good segue. I do have some working title trivia, actually, to kill your segue. Back uh, for for my film production class, I had to make a film noir, uh-huh. and I did one starring, starring our very own Shane. <laughs> and I remember yeah. while we were filming... We killed like two packs of cigarettes. We smoked a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> Every yeah. scene had a had a cigarette in it, and I remember watching it like maybe like a year ago. I mean, like Jesus Christ! Like we, there was I put a cigarette in every fucking scene. <laughs> Turns out I wasn't so far yeah. off. So. Most of our production costs were on cigarettes. <laughs> I remember that because you filmed it in my apartment, and I didn't know you were smoking in there. And my roommate got super pissed off that you were smoking in our apartment. <laughs> and I probably would have been too if I knew at the time that you were. <laughs> Especially with how much we were smoking, we made a. Like, you know how a smoker's house smells because it's years of smoking? We just condensed that into one night. <laughs> I think you may have actually not smoked during that specific scene inside the apartment. No, we did. No, we definitely did. <laughs> oh, oh, great. <laughs> definitely did. Yeah. I had I had this awesome B-roll of um, a bunch of cigarette butts in a glass, and and Shane was supposed to put throw a lit one in there. To It looked really cool. But we had to first make the, <laughs> the glass with cigarette so butts in. Just chain smoking. <laughs> just chain smoking cigarettes. Uh, all for the art. You know, Little did we know, big we're arts guy. That I'm basically Robert Mitchum. Because <laughs> I didn't learn my lines for this movie either. 
<laughs> Some would say I didn't write lines except for on the spot. <laughs> it's a fucking miracle I graduated college. Yeah, for real. <laughs> anyway, good segue. Uh, do you recommend watching this movie, June? Yes, I absolutely do. Shane? Yeah, I really, I really like this film. Mike? Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> but, I don't know, I mean, yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, I'd say it's worth a watch. So, uh, we are moving out of the past, but staying in the 50s with our next nice. movie. We're going to go to, uh... The Iron Giant, and the the note earlier was uh, talking about Ratatouille, which was, I believe, a Brad Bird movie. Uh, the Iron Giant is his directorial debut, so it should be fun. It's an animated movie. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if you all have seen it, but it, it is a movie I enjoy a bunch. We'll see how long into that cast we go. Did you know that's Vin Diesel? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Vin Diesel's in that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they modeled the Iron Giant's forehead after him. <laughs> <laughs> he also did. Uh, he also did The Incredibles. Vin Diesel, Brad Bird. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Brad Bird, Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel. <laughs> uh, so uh, when uh, the Iron Giant says, "I ain't got friends, I got family," you'll know who it is. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're gonna have fun with that one <laughs> uh. alright well it's been great thanks for joining us for another week and uh, with that I'm just making a, a point for you to insert one of the b-roll mm. lines that Shane's been saying <laughs> <laughs>